We are reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and from Revelation 21. So starting with 1 Corinthians 15, these are God's words. Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved brothers, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The first things are passed away. And he that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he saith, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, They are come to pass. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son." But for the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake of fire that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let us give thanks for the gift of God's word. Father, thank you for the scriptures that you have given to us through your Holy Spirit. Please send your spirit now to help me to rightly divide them and to distribute them to each person as he has need. Plant these words in our heart that we may grow and bear fruit for you 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You all should know this. We're working through the idea of calling or vocation. And last week we saw that man is called to serve God by participating in his work of dominion. We only looked at this in a very broad sense to see that our daily work, our daily bread, as it were, is the normal way in which we do this, the normal way in which we serve and participate in God's work. 
And I had intended today to zero in on the practicalities of this, how we are to go about doing it. But in preparing this sermon, I realized that I actually need to zoom out further before I can zoom in like that. (coughs) So uh, you can take it from me now that I am never going to tell you again what I'm going to preach on next week because I have finally gotten the message from the Lord that I don't actually have that decision in the power of my own mind. It is his choice. So today, I want to step back and consider how the calling of man fits into our eternal purpose. We have seen our created purpose, how it works out in our daily lives now, but where is it going? What is our end, as the Reformed tradition puts it in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Question one, what is man's chief end? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, when you think of enjoying God and glorifying him forever, what do you imagine? Hopefully, none of us imagine sitting on a cloud with a harp for eternity. But I do think that image has influenced us in more ways than we realize. Or to put a finger on it, certain theological ideas in the church have produced that image. And having brought it forth, they continue to feed on it. What I mean is the church has gotten into the habit of thinking that glorifying God and enjoying him forever is a fancy technical way of talking about our heavenly rest. And we imagine our heavenly rest in terms of a complete removal from our body, the body in which we currently work. Now, this isn't completely wrong. There is a heavenly rest that we enter into when we die, when our bodies stop functioning. They return to the earth. And our spirits return to heaven, as Ecclesiastes says, the dirt returneth to the earth as it was, and the spirit returneth unto God who gave it. It's Ecclesiastes 12.7. But this is not permanent. This really only happens while we are in this kind of waiting stage, waiting for the resurrection. We do not remain disembodied spirits, because man is made, as we saw last week, as the generation, the offspring of heaven and earth. That's Genesis 2.4. It is central to our nature that we are both spirit and body. We cannot be fully human without material form. Because the whole idea of man is that he is the heavenly pattern impressed into earthly matter. That is what makes him the center of creation. The image of God takes shape in Adam, the man, Adam, Adam, from the Adama, the ground, in order that Adam, the man, may shape the rest of the Adama, the ground, to reflect heaven as he has been shaped. Adam is carefully fitted to the task of shaping the earth according to the heavenly pattern because that is literally what he is, earth shaped according to the heavenly pattern. Spirit embodied in dirt. We talked about this last time, so I don't want to labor the point, but it is one that I think it's tricky for our modern minds to really get comfortable with and to settle into. This idea of man as the union of heaven and earth is central to our existence. We are made after the same pattern as Adam, each one of us. His work is our work. It is our job to bring the whole earth into conformity to the heavenly pattern 
as we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if this union of heaven and earth is completely central to both what we are and what we do, then it is legitimately ridiculous to think of salvation in terms of being disembodied. It is theologically nuts to think of eternity as purely spiritual. Yet that is how many Christians do think, and even those who know better, I think even, even me, really, we still have this kind of instinct about salvation, that it is spiritual, meaning therefore not physical. But to automatically think in disembodied terms about salvation has serious consequences. When you downplay the importance of the body, you cannot help but start spiritualizing the Christian life because if our eternal destiny is spiritual, then all that matters now is spiritual. And this will naturally veer off into a way of thinking that stresses the internal faith of a Christian at the expense of his external piety. It becomes all about what we believe in our hearts with little concern for what we do in our bodies. And this leads into terrible errors. Christ's rule is spiritual and unseen. And so you start to imagine that it does not therefore extend over the physical things that we see. The gospel itself becomes distorted into something purely private, purely individual, purely about the heart. The gospel of Christ's cosmic kingship the triumphant message about how Jesus is impressing the heavenly pattern into the world through his body, the church, mutates into an invitation to personal moral improvement. The demand for us to serve the risen king is replaced with the offer of him serving us. The object of faith becomes his work in the atonement rather than his enthronement. Instead of Jesus commanding us to bend the knee and graciously raising us up as sons when we do so, Jesus begs us to invite him into our hearts, as if he didn't break down the door to begin with. As, at its extremes, this, this doesn't just truncate the gospel, it doesn't just cut the gospel down to a much smaller size or vision, but at the extremes, it really blasphemes the gospel and corrupts it into no gospel at all. But this isn't the only error that comes from thinking of salvation in purely spiritual terms. There are further problems that arise when you see faith as something that is really a matter of the heart only. When you downplay the body, you are inevitably going to be attracted to antinomianism. Antinomia means against the law. It means that you think God's law is not, in fact, an ideal pattern for every human institution or even for the Christian himself as he tries to become more like God. If faith is just a matter of the heart, just a matter of belief in what Christ has done, then what we do is of little importance. If faith is just a matter of the heart, then it does not make sense to speak of embodying it. The body, after all, is of little consequence. And this in turn leads to an unbalanced attitude to good works. 
This is something that we're dealing with right now in the churches of New Zealand. There are various people, especially in the Reformed churches, who think that because we use the language of Scripture and say that works justify us in the sense that they are part of the living faith that justifies us, therefore we are heretics. But the only way to jump to that conclusion is if you have such a narrow understanding of the gospel that works are actually excluded from it. If you have so spiritualized the gospel as to separate it from the body entirely, so the gospel becomes about nothing but belief apart from action. Or, if we were to repeat the language of the reformers themselves, saying that works are the means by which we attain salvation, not the means by which we attain justification, but the means by which we attain salvation, that works are the the way that we walk to salvation. If we say that good works are necessary for salvation, which is really just a restatement of Hebrews 12, 14, we are accused of preaching works righteousness. But the only way to jump to that conclusion is to believe that the gospel is about nothing but justification. That salvation and justification are the same thing. Which explains why when these people preach the gospel, what they really preach is the atonement. When they defend the gospel, they go to Galatians. Well, we uphold the truth of Galatians, and we certainly believe in the atonement, but Galatians is not modeling how to preach the gospel. Let's go to Acts for that, where the apostles actually preached the gospel to unbelievers multiple times, and we see what they said. Show me where in Acts... They preach a gospel of atonement or justification. They don't. They preach the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus as the risen, enthroned king, reigning to press the pattern of heaven into the earth. Let me use an analogy from Psalm 2 and Romans 9. All the peoples of the earth are like wet clay shaking their fists at God, and Jesus takes the church, he takes hold of it like a big stamp, And over thousands of years, he rolls this stamp into the clay until his image is all that you see. And anyone who doesn't come, it doesn't become part of the pattern of that stamp is squashed. That's the gospel. Now, do you have to become, do you have to be justified to become part of that pattern? Yeah, of course, because that's part of the pattern. Can only Jesus justify you? Yeah, obviously, of course. But do you also have to fit yourself to the shape of the pattern afterward? Do you have to start changing the form of your life to fit the mold, as it were? Do you have to try continually to turn from evil and strive to do what God tells us in his law is good? Obviously. Can you be part of the pattern without doing that? Of course not. You'll be squashed. Flat. Now, is it Jesus who impresses the pattern upon you by his own power? Yes. And is it you who must nonetheless do the work of living out the pattern by his power? Yes. These things are not mutually exclusive. People who think that they are are working at the absolute surface level with the most superficial reading of words rather than thinking carefully or deeply about the concepts that these words express and how they fit together in the life of the believer. But 
this is what they do with faith itself. They reduce it to a superficial belief in the heart rather than a deep trust and reliance that is expressed in the body, in our works. You see, the, the form of their misunderstanding follows the form of their own gospel. There's always a peak of the mountain that flows down into everything below. A superficial gospel produces superficial thinkers. A shallow salvation produces shallow understanding. A shrunken gospel produces shrunken hearts. When you are working at the surface level, you struggle to get down to the heart of the matter. And I should emphasize, I'm not just thinking of people in the reformed world. I've been uh, reflecting on this as I had a conversation with someone in the charismatic world this week. Let me give you one more example that I think really illustrates this point well, which fits into the charismatic thing. I was saying to Henry yesterday how the Lordship salvation controversy is really so dumb. It has been an issue in the church for, what, like two decades? This puts a finger on how badly, the response to it puts a finger on how badly, many Reformed pastors and theologians understand the gospel itself. Look, if Jesus isn't your king then you are not a citizen of his kingdom. And if you're not a citizen of his kingdom, then you are not saved. That's the anti-lordship salvation position refuted in one sentence. Yet how many theologians waste thousands of words trying to show that accepting Jesus as savior isn't enough, you have to accept him as Lord also, and act like proving this is a hard problem, like there's even a difference between these two things. Like Jesus doesn't save you as a gracious benefit of being your Lord. Why do they struggle with this? It is because they have reduced the gospel to private heart religion. They have already, in a significant sense, rejected Jesus as Lord. They think the gospel is just about God's declaration of your righteousness about God renovating your heart rather than God's declaration of Christ's righteous reign over creation and about Christ renovating creation as the ruler of heaven and earth and you becoming a part of that. But without Jesus as Lord, all you're really left with is moralism. The gospel becomes about Jesus really being here to make you a better person, to give you some good guidelines to live by, of course, especially to remove the sin that you have in your heart so that God will love you or God will accept you into heaven. He already loves you. And isn't this how most people in the church, even in the reformed world, tend to behave? Isn't that how they live, how they think? Jesus has cleaned up my heart, so as long as I don't do anything scandalous, I can bank on a place in heaven. Now, I'm not saying their theology says this. Their theology is better than that. I'm saying this is how they tend to live. This is the impression that they give off. Isn't that what everyone thinks Christianity is all about? Even unbelievers? Why? Because that's how Christians present it. In fact, evangelicals have been writing about this for years. Albert Moeller, back in 2009, wrote, Clearly, millions of our neighbors believe that moralism is our message. Nothing less than the boldest preaching of the gospel will suffice to correct this impression and to lead sinners to salvation in Christ. But what is the gospel that Mola wants us to preach so boldly? It is the very same gospel that our neighbors believe is moralism. What is the salvation he wants to lead them to in Christ? It is a purely spiritual salvation. It's all justification, no sanctification. 
Moller hates the idea, we know this now especially, but even back then it was pretty obvious, Moller hates the idea of Christianity transforming the whole world, transforming cultures. He hates the idea of Christian laws, for example. He is, like nearly all Christians alive today, a political polytheist. That's another word for someone who believes in secular neutrality. A political monotheist believes that Christ is the ruler of the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers of the earth. That's Revelations 1.5. Revelation 1.5. A political polytheist does not believe that. The gospel that he preaches is purely private, purely spiritual. It is moralistic and focused on justification, and unbelievers can see that. Yeah, of course, they have misunderstood the work of Jesus in it, but they have certainly gotten the broad strokes. And this is why we are where we are. Our faith has become a private religion of individual moral restoration rather than a public religion of global redemption. Because this gospel is put in terms of God loving us and Jesus dying for us, it causes complacency. Again, I'm not denying God loves us and Jesus died for us, of course. But he also judges us and Jesus also was raised for us. And this is how the gospel is preached in the New Testament. When these things fade into the background and when love is foregrounded instead and atonement is foregrounded instead, we are inclined to stop fearing God because we're justified. So there's nothing to fear. There's nothing left to do. But if there's nothing to do, then it doesn't matter what we do. The problem is that once you stop fearing God, you have to fill that void with something, and of course, you fill it with the fear of man. So the only thing that becomes unthinkable once you have spiritualized salvation itself is upsetting people, looking scandalous. Causing embarrassment is really the only actual sin left to commit. So cowardice replaces boldness, niceness replaces love, we fear man, and so we present the gospel in terms of God's love instead of God's coming judgment. The Great Commission turns into showing how nice Christianity makes people in the hope that others will want to join the club. <coughs> Witnessing becomes twisted from testifying about our king to testifying about how accepting we are, just as accepting as the world. And this is the progression into mainline Protestantism, the apostate church that we see, especially in America today. It's what happens when Christians have finally perfected fitting into the world, so the world will accept Christianity, and when they finally have perfected it, the world turns around and asks why it needs Christianity, and the Christians, well, they have nothing to say. It might seem like a bit of a rabbit trail, since I'm supposed to be talking about vocation, I'm not actually up here just to criticize other people in the church. Don't you worry. Next week, we'll be criticizing our own sins extensively. But to expose our sins, we need to understand our purpose as image bearers of God in the first place. What is it that we are made to do so that we might know when we are falling short of that glory? But also, we need to understand what the gospel is, what it restores us to, how it achieves that glory. If we are sinning against the image of God or against the gospel, we need to understand the image of God and the gospel and how they go together. 
So it is important to hold a light up to that first. We must see the purpose of man is to impress the heavenly pattern onto the earth just as he is the heavenly pattern impressed onto earth. And we must see that the gospel is the restoration of that pattern in the Lord Jesus Christ, who commands us to pray that he would establish his kingdom through us on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we are called to do as a church. And if we cannot do that, then we are good for nothing and ready to be thrown out and trampled underfoot like salt that has lost its savor. But as we saw last week, this calling is bound up with our daily work. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus immediately goes on to say, give us today our daily bread, which represents our work. And it is how we bring heaven down to earth through mundane labor. Man was made to serve God by working for six days and by resting and worshiping on the seventh. Work is the majority of our lives, and thus the majority of our calling. But somehow we have got the idea that salvation is all about rest and has nothing at all to do with work. It's not because we imagine that in heaven we will no longer serve God, it's because we think that since work is something we do in the body and salvation is spiritual about going to heaven when we die, where we are disembodied, then there is no more work ever again. This is not right. It could not possibly be right unless man became something completely different in eternity. Unless he stopped being a combination of heaven and earth. Heaven, as we think of it, is not the final state. The new heavens and the new earth are the final state. The resurrection is the final state. The final state is embodied existence for eternity. Now, in our embodied eternal state, will there be no work? Will every day be a Sabbath? Six days we shall rest, and the seventh we shall rest. God could arrange things that way, but it would be a remarkable departure from the pattern that he has established for man from the beginning. Grace restores nature. It does not overturn it. Behold, I am making all things new, not all things completely different. So should we expect that there will be no work in eternity? Remember, work is not a result of the curse. Toil, fruitless labor, the daily grind, these are a result of the curse. God curses the work, so the work had to be good to begin with. Work is what man was made for from the beginning. Daily service of God through exercising dominion over the world. Let me reframe this for you and put it another way. When God swears that the Israelites shall not enter into his rest because of their rebellion, what is the rest that he is talking about? Psalm 95 says, Harden not your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Wherefore I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now the rest that he is speaking of is the rest that they had to abandon and instead wander in the desert for 40 years. It is the rest of the promised land. 
And in the promised land, did the Israelites do no work? Was the rest so literal that they never had to do anything but worship God and lie around all day? Obviously, that's not true. Six days you shall work and do all your labor, God told them. No, the promised land was a rest because it was a picture of the Garden of Eden. God placed his firstborn son, Israel, into the promised land as an expansion of the original pattern where he placed his firstborn son, Adam, into the Garden of Eden. You see how he describes the promised land in Leviticus 26 in terms of lying down, in terms of rest. Leviticus 26, 6 to 12 says, I will give you peace in the land and ye shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will cause evil beasts to cease out of the land Neither shall the sword go through your land, and ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store long kept, and ye shall bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God and ye shall be my people. He will walk among them and be their God, huh? Just like they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in Genesis 3.8, and just like we see in Revelation how God will be living with his people. So God's rest in the promised land that the people enter into is God's protection and provision. It is a picture of eschatological rest, a picture of eternity. They lie down. No one will attack They will be fruitful. They are unafraid. They are not constantly on guard, constantly fearful, constantly having to run and fight and constantly struggling to survive. In other words, the rest that God assures the Israelites that they will receive in the promised land if they keep his covenant is the same rest that Adam was given in the garden. It was a partial reversal of the curse for Israel. The daily toil, the thorns and the thistles are kept at bay to some extent for their sake. But if their rest is Adam's rest, and we have already seen last week that Adam was made to work, and we've also seen that their rest is consummated in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, then rest and work cannot be mutually exclusive. There is a particular kind of rest that is exclusive of work. You cannot work on the Sabbath. No work you shall do. That is certainly true, but that is only one day in seven. The rest of the days are work, and yet, in the case of Adam, and I think we have to conclude in the case of ourselves in eternity, it will be restful work. It is not laborious. It is not tedious. It is not futile, and it is not a struggle. But restful work is still work. Service of God exercising dominion. So if these things are all pictures of the world to come, we must be able to say that there is some kind of work that we will continue to do in the resurrection. The new heavens and the new earth will not be in some kind of stasis. Like God will simply zap it into being in the perfect form at the resurrection. Like he'll create this global garden city and it will be frozen in time Nothing will change. And then we spend the rest of our days worshipping. That just doesn't ring true to what man is called to do in the first place. And honestly, it sounds a little bit creepy and surreal. No, in eternity, we will work. To enjoy God and to uh, to 
enjoy God and to glorify him forever, or glorify God and enjoy him forever, if you want to put it the other way, means to serve God through daily but restful work. No longer with toil, but participating in God's own work of dominion over creation. And the work that we are doing now is preparation for that. God is training us. We are learning to be kings through the priestly work of our daily vocations. And I don't mean that we will have the same jobs in the new world. I don't think that Jared, for instance, is signing up for an eternity of chopping lumber <laughs> or Mark, an eternity of installing insulation or Yaku, I don't think you're going to spend eternity standing in front of a machine that creates bits of metal. I doubt that I will spend eternity making websites. We know that the new earth will be an eternal weight of glory beyond any conception that we can have now. And that God has things planned that no heart has ever conceived. But I do mean that there is some kind of similarity between the kind of work we do now and the kind of work we will do then. The work that we do then will be far greater and more glorious, but it must be something like the work we do now. There must be enough of an analogy for the work that we do now, for the work that we do then to actually be prepared, be something, something we are prepared for. It has to, our work now has to be preparing and training us for the work that God intends us to do as his redeemed, resurrected, royal sons. Think about the logic of what Jesus is doing in his reign now. He is currently impressing the heavenly pattern onto the earth, right? He is reigning until all of his enemies are made a footstool. And that includes feminism and socialism and transgenderism and pornography and all these hideous ideologies that we think of in broadly political terms. But it also includes things like obesity and factory farming and consumerism and over-industrialization and pollution. I heard just this morning that all the insects are disappearing because of too many pesticides, and that means that there are going to be fewer birds, and that has all kinds of follow-on effects. Well, Jesus is reigning over that. That is an enemy he will defeat. You think the post-millennial future is full of fatty, scoffing KFC produced from chickens raised in massive warehouses and delivered by drones while we all discuss theology in the metaverse? <laughs> no. The post-millennial future is a garden city. These things will be worked out as the implications of the gospel are worked out in every area of life. Because all of Christ for all of life means all of Christ for all of life all over the world. Jesus returns when every enemy is defeated. That is, when everything that stands against his reign, everything that defies the heavenly pattern, is put down. He returns when the world is looking pretty much like he intends it to look. I was listening to a, the theology podcast on the way over here, and they were talking about Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards makes the excellent point that history is working towards, history is bringing about the end that God has in mind. History is not some kind of accident hermetically sealed from the glory to come. History is bringing about the glory to come. 
the only thing that will remain for Jesus to put down when he returns is death. He isn't going to come back to zap the world into an utterly different state. He is producing that different state right now through his church, through the work that we are doing. He comes back when the world is ready for eternity, which means the end point of the post-millennial future is something like the final state, the eternal state, the new world after the resurrection, and we know that it is also something like the world today. There is a continuity. It isn't a completely different thing. It is a redeemed, perfected version of the very thing that we are working toward right now. That is why our work has purpose and meaning. That is why we can have hope in it, despite the daily grind. And that is why it matters that we are faithful in it and diligent in it, and that we strive after holiness in it, and that we know what it should be. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Wherefore, my beloved brothers, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that is the topic that God willing, we will look up next, we will take up next week.